Good evening, everyone. All right, tonight's going to be a very interesting subject. I'm going to do a smile check, starting on this side. Is everybody okay today? Yes? Praise God, smiling, smiling, yes, yes. Good. Smiles there, yes, praise God, I like that smile, praise the Lord. Smile, I see it, all right. Yes, I like that, she's, she's excited, praise God. Brother Samuel, smile. All right, praise God. All right, before we begin tonight, this is actually a, a very tough subject. Um, but, but God's grace, we've laid a good foundation. So when we, we began to go through the, the subject matter, if you would understand the larger context, I think you're going to be okay. But if you don't understand the larger context, even if you've heard this before, you're going to miss everything. There are some that think they understand and they don't know anything. And, I, and that's a true statement. And so before we begin this evening, I'm going to ask, if you would bow your heads with me, I'm going to kneel, and we're going to ask for some special help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, for bringing us into this new week, bringing us through this day. There are only a few more days like this where we can come in peace without picket signs and people wanting to shut us down. So, Father, in these moments of peace, we ask that you awaken our minds and our understanding, that we can understand the deep things of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. 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 We're going to start with a review. I want to help us understand the larger context before we begin to delve. Now, tonight we are going to talk about the Antichrist, but I've retitled it Two Mysteries, One Hope. Two Mysteries, One Hope. Now, when we, on the third night, we talked about war in heaven and hell on earth. And we talked about how Lucifer had an interest in taking God's kingdom. Now, I want to tell you something that you already know, but I want to make it extremely plain to you. His plans have not changed. He still has every intent to set up his kingdom here on planet Earth. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6 and verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants yard whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So it is, it is the enemy's intent that his kingdom is established. I'm going to show you a picture. You've seen these already before. This is a married couple. Now the Bible says I'm going to show you a mystery. Two people becoming one flesh. Now, I tell you the truth, it is very strange for two people to become one flesh. It is not a natural thing for that to transpire. It is a supernatural experience when it does. Now, this relation that is being presented here on the screen is a symbol of what God wants to do in the experience of his church and himself. But this also happens in relationships. There's discord, separation, heartache pain. The question is why. Now, in the Bible, there's this 
image in Revelation chapter 12. You've seen this before. This is not anything new. And it's an image of a woman. Her feet are on the moon. Her face is shining with the sun. Upon her head is a crown of 12 stars. We said a woman in Bible prophecy is a symbol of what, my friends? The church. We, saw, we said that, we showed that from the scriptures, and then we have this other mystery. This is a dreadful and terrible dragon. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that this dragon is none other than the devil and Satan, according to Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. And we know that the devil and Satan does not come out in the open most of the time. What the devil likes to do, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, he likes to work through mediums. Are you following the idea? In the Garden of Eden, the devil went through a serpent and spoke through a serpent to get to Eve. And then the devil went from the serpent and went to, through the woman to talk to Adam. Are you following the idea? And this is why it's so important as God's people that we have to make sure that we're always connected with the Most High. Because at any moment of any day, if we separate from the Most High, we can actually become the conduits of the enemy. Do you know Peter was in the very presence of Jesus, and Jesus had just shared with him the most wonderful truth that upon this rock I will build my church. Then Jesus says, I must go, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, be it far from you, Lord. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. In one moment, we can be in the presence of God and experience the euphoria of, of, of love. And at the same time, if we don't stay vitally connected, we can be a conduit or a medium for the enemy. Are you following the idea? So I want to make sure that point is clear. And then I'm going to do something that you just must observe. So in heaven, we have those two images, the one of the woman and one of the dragon. Now there is war in heaven. I'm going to make two lines. Now, this is not big enough. Normally, I would have, like, in my house, I have, like, these big boards, massive boards, but I don't have that. And, and I'll also put it on the screen, but I don't have that either. So I'm going to make two lines. The first line I'm going to call the line of the righteous. The second line I'm going to call that the line of the rebellion. Okay? And not spelling rebellion properly, but you understand what it means. Now, the line of the righteous starts in heaven, but from heaven it comes to earth. And who does God create in his own image? Adam and Eve. Is that right? So Adam and Eve are in the line of the righteous. Adam and Eve. And God gives them a special, special work to do. And then they have a son. What is the, son, what's the son's two sons' names? Cain and Abel. Now, Cain was of the rebellion. Everybody agree with that? Because Cain saw that his blood, brother's deeds were righteous and his, and, and, and his were evil, so he slew his brother. This is the same spirit of Satan. Cain has a brother. His name is Abel. So Abel's in the righteous line. All right? So I'm going to put Abel here in the righteous line. Then Adam and Eve has another son. His name was what, my friends? Seth. So Seth is of the righteous line. And you see that this line begins to kind of proliferate, and this line continues on, and then you have, let's fast forward to Noah. Noah's of the righteous line. Everybody agrees with that? 
Noah, and then who's and then the people that lived during Noah's time, we have the antediluvians, yes? And then you just go a little bit further of the righteous line, there's a man named Abraham. Everybody knows Abraham. Now Abraham was of the righteous line. But the people that lived in his day during Abraham's time, they were not of the righteous line. We have the Egyptians and other pagan uh, powers that were there. And then Abraham has a lineage of children. We call them the children of children of Israel. The children of Israel are here. And then in the, in the, in the Old Testament, who was always fighting the Israelites? The Philistines, the, the Hittites, the Peravites, the Istavites, the Moabites, all the ites, right? So I'm going to put the ites down here. Okay, stay with me. So there's a righteous line and there's an unrighteous line. These people are responsible for the covenant. These people are responsible for the line that Jesus is going to be born through. There's always been a chosen people. There's always been those who have said we are in a covenant relationship with God. And there's always been those that Satan has used as his medium to persecute and prosecute those who are saying they're on God's side. Does everybody follow that idea? So after Israel is here, Israel ends up getting captured, and we have the, the nations of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, okay? All these are nations that have come up against Israel. And then something begins to happen. After Israel, as God's chosen conduit to keep his covenant relationship, Remember, we saw yesterday that they, probations ends up closing on them as the ones that carry the ball. And then the Christian church is born. So the Christian church is born, and for a time, pagan Rome was the persecuting power of the Christian church. All along the way, there have been chosen ones of God who carries the covenant. Now, with that as the, the pretext or the context of our study. I want you to get ready to think. All right? I want you to get ready to think. Let's go a little further here. So here's the woman, the dragon. We know about that already. I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation. I want to read verse seven, chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Now, brothers and sisters, this is going to be some serious chewing tonight. Some serious chewing. And even if you think you've heard this subject before, I promise you, you have never heard this before. Revelation 17, and I want to read verse number 5. Revelation 17 and verse 5. The Bible says, And upon her head was a name written. What's the name written, my friends? Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So the Bible says that this woman has a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great. She is the mother of harlots. She has now introduced abominations in the earth. Verse 7, the Bible says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads, and what, my friends? Ten horns. So we have this mystery. 
And this mystery in Scripture, the mystery of iniquity, mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, mystery of the woman, and the beast that carrieth her. Now, there's actually a night when I'm literally going to go through Revelation 17 nearly verse by verse. You don't want to miss that night. But for now, I want to introduce to you this mystery. I want you now to go to 2 Thessalonians. And here is where the, the skeleton of our study will be for the rest of the evening. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to jump and read verse 7, and then we're going to start a whole study in a moment. So 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So this power is supposed to be exposed. Now, unfortunately, my friends, every generation has had a, a power that has attacked those who've had the truth. Every generation that is there and it's representing God's character and his person, the devil's not just going to let you go and be a Christian. Are you following what I'm saying? He's not just going to let you just walk and just be. There's going to be an exposing. So here is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's in your Bible, but I have it on the screen. I've highlighted things on purpose. So here on the screen, we're going to read the whole thing. It says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, talking about the second coming of Jesus, that day shall not come. Except there come a, what's it say, my friends? A fallen away first. So there has to be an apostasy. There has to be a falling away from that which is righteous. And if they're falling away, that means at one point they were right. At one point they were okay with God. But that day will not come unless there's a falling away first. And that man of sin, what's it say, my friends? So the second coming will not come until the man of sin is revealed. Now, my friends, this is, again, this is a hard subject. And I'm going to help you understand why it becomes so important in a moment. The son of perdition. So he's called the man of, his, man of sin, the son of perdition. And then it says, gives these characteristics. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is, what's it say? God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now listen, you know, when I do this subject, it actually pains me. Do you see what the passage says? The passage says that the power that we're going to expose tonight actually is after the working of Satan himself. Did you see that? Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This is a serious 
saying. And this is not me saying it. This is Paul, the apostle. All right. Now, what I did, because I love comparing scripture with scripture. Notice the characteristics. Is a man of sin revealed? He's called the son of perdition. He opposeth and exalteth. He sitteth in the temple and claims to be God. He will be revealed in his time. The mystery of iniquity is already working in the days of Paul. Something is withholding. Something is holding him back. But when it is removed, the wicked one will be revealed. And when he is revealed, he's going to have supernatural powers accompanying him. Does everybody follow that? That's all from the Bible. That's not from a commentary. What we're doing, we're Bible students. I just lay the evidence on the screen. All right? Watch this now. So I took these characteristics. Well, actually, before I do go to the characteristics. So the second coming. The passage says, before the second coming, something has to happen. What has to happen? There has to be a falling away first. And the man of sin has to be revealed. So these are the way marks. Second coming, but before the second coming, there's a falling away. After the falling away, then the man of sin is going to be revealed. But there's something that's in the way that has to be removed in order for the falling away and the revelation to take place. Everybody follow? All right. And it comes with power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, I already see I don't have enough time to finish this talk. All right. So we're going we're gonna to keep going. So this power that is in the day of Paul, what kingdom was ruling during the time that Paul is an apostle? What kingdom? Pagan Rome. Pagan Rome is in rulership. The emperor is in his throne, okay? So we know that pagan Rome is in power. Now I'll put that image up there, and we'll come to an understanding shortly. But the wicked one is to be revealed. Who is this power? Now, I took the characteristics that we found in 2 Thessalonians 2, and I compared them to Revelation chapter 17. Please note that the beast is a scarlet-colored beast. Now, you know, scarlet color in the Bible, according to Isaiah chapter 1, talks about scarlet being a symbol of sin. Okay, so we know that this is a sinful power. Perdition is destruction. Notice in Revelation 17, uh, verse 8, it talks about this beast going into perdition, just like he is the son of perdition here. It says he opposes and exalteth. To exalt means he has the names of blasphemy, and he opposes because he takes the lives of the believers of God. He kills, he murders those who claim to know God. It says in number four, he sitteth on many waters. Notice in verse four, I mean, number four up here, he sitteth in the temple and claims to be God. Notice number five in the yellow there, will become hated and burned. So there's a judgment that ends up coming on this power where the world turns on it and actually destroys it. That's what the Bible prophesies. And then it says, Number five over here, he will, be, he will be revealed in his time. What happens? When the power is exposed, the global leaders will say, I want nothing to do with this. But they're going to learn too late. And that's why you're in this room. You see, I'm not the only one that's going to be preaching this. 
God is recruiting right now. God is recruiting people to be on his team so that this message can go to the world and give a warning before it's too late. Notice number seven or number six. It says the mystery of iniquity is already working. Number, number six over here is it's called a mystery. Number seven, something is withholding, but when it is removed, the wicked one will be revealed. I love, I love riddles, okay? So like in Revelation 17, when we go on it, it says five are fallen, one is and the other is not yet come. But when he's come, you know, it's, it's just a nice little riddle. So number seven, they go together. And lastly, number eight, his coming is after the working of Satan with power, signs, and lying wonders. And the bottomless pit is always a symbol of evil and darkness in the book of Revelation. Can you see that there's a match here? Can you see that? There's a biblical match between what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians and what Revelation 17 is talking about in the last book of the Bible. Let's go a little further. I mean, we're just starting. Are you guys ready to study? So, I, what, see, listen, all I'm doing, I'm just laying everything on the table. What you're responsible to do is be Bereans and go back and study. If you literally are just staring at me this whole time, you're in trouble. Okay? You want to make sure this information, you have it somewhere. And they're going to give you a handout too so you can use that as a study. So then the other thing that came to my mind, before I do this, the other thing that came to my mind, I looked up the phrase man of sin. Now I, I know that the Bible teaches that line upon line, here little, there little. I'm supposed to be able to compare scripture with scripture to understand it. And the Bible explains itself. I don't need to go to an encyclopedia per se, although those are helpful. I don't need to go to a commentary. I definitely don't use commentaries that much, like for real. That's like the last, I like they are far on my desk. Like they, they are in there, but they are for like almost like historical references at best. But commenting on what the scriptures say, I don't use them. I'm just telling you, generally speaking, I don't use them unless I come to a place I'm completely stumped. But what I do, I take my Bible, and I compare the Bible with the Bible, and then I say, okay. Now, is there a historical reference that it has that helps me understand? Otherwise, somebody telling me what the text says? No, sir. No, ma'am. The Bible explains itself. So what I wanted to do was, I said, man of sin? I've never seen this phrase in all the Bible. So I typed in, in my eSword, it's a free app you can download on your computer. You type it in, man of sin. And I looked at the whole Bible. Couldn't find anything. It's like, why is this phrase here and I can't have the Bible explain it? Then I found something beautiful. Now, if you get this point, you'll understand why this power is an abomination to God. Watch this. So in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be, what's it say, my friends? Reveal the son of perdition. So I looked this up. Now, Numbers 9.13. This was a gem. And I know most of you have never seen this before in your life. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, why is it saying that? And then it goes on to say, because, why? 
he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season, that man shall bear his, what's it say? So if that man bears his sin, that makes him a man of what? A man of sin. Are you paying attention? But let's look at the weight of what's happening. So every three, three times a year, there are special gatherings that the Jewish nation would have where everybody that was a man had to come to these gatherings. It was a requirement. You could not skip it. If you skipped it, you're supposed, you, were, you couldn't skip it unless you were sick. That's what the passage says. But the man that is clean and he's not on a journey, so if he's not sick and he's not on a far, far journey, you are required to be there. And forbeareth, that means he doesn't want to come to the Passover, even that same soul shall be cut off from among his people. Why is this so significant? Because these three times that they were supposed to gather together was a symbol of the plan of salvation. Listen to me. And you were supposed to bring your offering to these gatherings so that you can be forgiven and you could be clean. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, so if that makes sense, watch the application of this. Watch this. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to read more than this passage, but watch this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I want you to see the, the, the context of this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to start early on in this passage here. 1 Samuel 2. I'm going to start at verse, let's start at verse number 11, okay? Everybody there? All right, let's take our time. I really need you to get this. It says, and Elkanah went to Ramah, I mean, start at verse 12. It says, now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, too. They knew not the Lord. The priest's custom with the people was that, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they hid in Shiloh unto all the, the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the men that sacrifice, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but, what's it say, my friends? Now tell me, based on what Brother Ola presented, was that something that you're supposed to do? No, you're not supposed to eat raw flesh. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as, they so, as thy soul desireth. Then he would answer, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great. We're in verse 17 now. The sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. Now watch, watch this. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Pause for a moment. So stay with me. So the priests who were supposed to represent God 
were treating the people wrong and treating the offering of God wrong. So the people said, we hate the offering. Are you following? We don't want to come to church anymore. We don't want to bring a lamb anymore. Now, when this happened, this passage happens. Oh, actually, before I get there, let's keep reading. Where, where do we stop? Se- 17. So let's read verse, um, verse 17. It says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen, linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from the year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their home. And the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived. Okay, verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto, the Isra- unto Israel. And how they, what's it say, my friends? Lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to do what? Wait. Now remember, the people of God hated the offering of the Lord. So if the people of God do not bring an offering in the season that they're supposed to bring it, what happens to the people? They bear their sins. Are you, stay, are you with me, my friends? So when, when the Bible highlights this man as the man of sins, he's actually teaching the people not how to be saved, but they're actually retaining their sins in their body when they think they're being okay. Now listen to me. That, I mean, that's an application for that power, but let's make the application to church in general. You see, if you're a preacher or a teacher or a Sabbath school director or you're a mom and a dad and you misrepresent the character of God, your children and the church members won't like your church. Right? So people are like, I don't want to go to church. Why don't they want to go to church? I don't like hypocrites. They're not preaching nothing. You know, all these things began to come up. We are responsible. Like, I'm responsible. When I stand up before you, this is no small thing, right? I represent the most high, and I don't do it the best. You know, I want to get better, you know? But there is a responsibility that is weighted upon those who represent the most high. And if we don't represent them right, the people will rebel and say, I don't want this. The sacrifice of Jesus, I don't want that. So the man of sin has this burden upon him because he causes the people to transgress. They do not accept the sacrifice as God has designed it to be accepted. Does it, wait, does that make sense, everybody? All right, we're going to move on to the next phrase. The next phrase is son of perdition. Now there are, I looked up all the places where this phrase is used in the Bible, and these are all of them. Except there come a fallen away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, there are four, these five passages, uh, six, one, two, three, four, five, five passages. John 17, 12 says, While I was yet with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of who, my friends? Perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Now, who is that referring to? It's referring to a man named Judas. The son of perdition in this passage is Judas. Judas Iscariot, the traitor, is here spoken of. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But they that will be rich into temptation, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in, what's it say, my friends? Destruction and what? Perdition. That's interesting. So I'm going to put that up here. Notice my summary of the thought is this. The focus on money leads to perdition, the loss of one's soul. Would you agree with that? It's the love of money. Now, money doesn't lead you to, 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 to be lost. It's the love of it. It's your, you're willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of a dollar. You cannot love mammon and God simultaneously. You must love one over the other. Hebrews 10, 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith. And, and if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of souls. So my summary of thought was this. And mind you, when I did this, I was doing this for myself. When I put this together, I was actually going through and seeking to understand for myself what this was about. So to draw back from salvation leads to perdition. You know, every night when I stand here and I give the appeal, will you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Will you, will you allow him to be the Lord and ruler of your life? Every time I make that appeal, it, either you accept or you reject. Now, if you reject, you're drawn away from salvation and your heart becomes harder. So it's going to take more supernatural intervention for the Holy Spirit to break through and to bring you back to God. You follow the idea. So to draw back is going to lead to destruction or perdition. Last one, 2 Peter 3, 7 says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now the same word, uh, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of who, my friends? Ungodly men. So I put this together. God has, God has judgment and perdition is set aside for ungodly men. So I started at the top. Judas had his focus on money drew back from salvation and he will be destroyed with the ungodly. You see that? That's a true story. Judas loved money. That's what, that's, that was his focus. So the power that's called the son of perdition will have the same characteristics. Are you following? Judas was in the presence of God. He looked righteous. He looked holy. He held the treasury. He acted like he cared for the poor. Are you following, my friends? The same characteristics that Judas has, so will this Antichrist power have. All right. Everybody understand that? You guys see how we're building? Piece by piece, slowly but surely. Let's go a little further. Now, perdition. I looked everywhere in the Bible for this word perdition. Because it says son of perdition. So I was looking, where can I find it? And so in the Greek, that's the Greek, again, you just go to Eastward, it gives you all that stuff. The word perdition means damnable, destruction, perdition, perish, pernicious ways. So that's what the word apolia means, perdition. There was an equivalent word in the Old Testament. The equivalent word in the Old Testament means, by extension, 
destruction or wickedness. So when we talk about the sons of perdition, we're also talking about the sons of Belial. Are y'all with me? So there is a limit on son of perdition, but there is an equivalent in the Old Testament, sons of Belial. I thought that was interesting. Remember that Eli's sons were called the sons of Belial? All right. Stay with me. We're just doing a little bit of homework. Everything I've showed you has been from the Bible. Is that right, my friends? Okay, stay with me. So there was a, it was so awesome. One day I'm studying this thing, studying this thing. I'm putting in hours. I think in, in, I think in two days, I probably put in about 40-something hours of study. I was not eating. <laughs> so like I was just like, I was, like, I was hungry, you know? And then something happened. Did you know that David was a prophet? David was a prophet. And David said something right before he dies. And I thought it was very, very interesting. So go with me to 2 Samuel for a moment. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 23. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Watch this now. It's, it's quite fascinating. This David's a prophet. Right before he dies, he says something that is super profound and applies to the last days. I was amazed. I was like, what is this? Verse 1 says, Now these be the last words of David. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Now these be the last words of David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springeth up out of the earth by the clear shining rain. And then it says in verse 5, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting, what's it say, my friends? Covenant. Ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire through, although he make it not to grow. Now watch verse 6. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. The sons of Belial cannot be taken with hands. Notice the screen. So I looked this up, this phrase, because they cannot be taken with hands. I've seen that phrase before somewhere. So look at this. Three places where that phrase is used. The Bible says in Daniel 2.34, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without, what's it say? Without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them in pieces. Daniel 8, 25. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken. How, how my friends? 
without hands. So what does this phrase mean, without hands? Notice Colossians 2.11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Well, how are you circumcised without hands? That means there must be a supernatural intervention. Everybody follow? So please notice what David says. David says in verse number six, but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. So can you beat the sons of Belial with human, with human hands? You cannot. Any special organization by humans on planet Earth to take the, 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 the sons of Belial out? No, you can't do it. There has to be a supernatural intervention. Everybody follow that? All right, stay with me now. Verse 7 says, but the man, uh-oh, what did I do? But the man that shall touch them, so there is someone that can touch them, must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. Y'all not hear nothing. You guys see that? So you, naturally, you can't do it. Naturally, we can't win. But there is a man. Y'all hear what I'm saying? There is a man who can touch them. Notice what these passages say. Psalms 2.9 says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of, what's it say, my friends? A rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Revelation 2.27 says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in the shivers, even as I have received of my Father. Who's talking? Jesus is talking. Jesus is saying, I can do this. Revelation 12.5 says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with what, my friends? A rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. It's talking about Jesus. Revelation 19.15 says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So David is on his deathbed, and he's prophesying. And in vision, he says, there's going to be these sons of Belial, but you can't touch them. There's no power that can touch them except there is a man. And then he references that man, and then all the other passages in the Scripture say that man is Jesus. Everybody follow that? There's a reason, my friends. In fact, notice, I want you to, want you to see this. We'll go to Revelation 13 for a moment. Go to Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, it says something interesting as well. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And what does it say after that, my friends? And all the world wanted after the beast. Watch verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, what did they say? 
Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to do what? Do you understand? This, it's the same pompous, arrogant voice, even when Goliath was saying, when they were like, who's going to fight this giant? Who's going to make war against him? The idea with human eyes, there is no power on planet Earth that can stop it. Zero. And I'm running out of time. Let's go a little further. I'm going to go as far as I can, and then we're just going to have to just, you know, stop. It says, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. Now watch what else it says. And they shall be utterly burned with fire. Where, my friends? Watch this. Watch this. This is just Bible study, guys. All this is Bible. Boom. Look at what it says. Revelation 21, verse 9. And the, I mean, Leviticus 21, verse 9. Leviticus 21, verse 9. And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the, what's it say, my friends? The whore. She profaneth who? Her father. She shall be burnt with what, my friends? Y'all pay, you paying attention? Daniel 7, 11. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words with the horn spake, I beheld till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given where, my friends? To the burning flames. Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall, what's it say? They shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with what? So the same thing that you see in Leviticus 21 verse 9, you see happening prophetically to this power that is anti-Christ. Revelation 18.8, therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord. For strong is who, my friends? For strong is the Lord God who judges her. So this is not me judging her. This is not me condemning her. These are not my feelings. The problem is, do you remember, do you, do you remember um, Jesus as he's walking by a fig tree? He curses the tree. Do you remember why he cursed the tree? Because it, it didn't bear any fruit. But what happened was the tree had the leaves on it. And didn't have any fruit. So it was deceptive. So you would go to the tree because the, tr the type of tree he, he cursed was a fig tree. The figs grow before the leaves, just so you know, on a fig tree. On that particular one. So when he went to the leaves, he went to the tree, there's no fruit. It's a deception. Can you imagine people come to church, then there's no fruit in the church? God doesn't like that. That's why he was upset at the Pharisees. He's, up, he's upset at the Pharisees because you were supposed to represent me, and then you bring these people. He says you bring them from afar, and you make them tenfold more of the devil when they come to church after that. God has a problem with people misrepresenting him and then maintaining that position, and there's no salvation for the people that come. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Okay, so keep this in mind. Therefore, shall her, now, Revelation 19, 20, watch this. 
And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles. So we're going to talk about the false prophet very, very soon. That wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received what, my friends? The mark of the beast. So we don't want the mark of the beast. You're going to need to know what it is. Some of you think you know what it is. It's not what you think it is. Receive the mark of the beast and them that worship his, what's it say? His image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstones. These both were cast alive together in the same place. I'm like, man, God dropped end time prophecy on David as he's about to go out. I was, I was amazed. I was like, how did he do? That was amazing. But let's go a little further. Second Thessalonians 2. 4. Wait, before I go there. Did everybody understand what we just did? It's a lot. Like, I'm giving you a lot. Like, you got to go home. You got to be like, Brother Waller. <laughs> it's a lot. But let's, okay, let's go a little further. Notice the next phrase. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Now, Paul is talking, and that means he's making reference to something. He's not making stuff up. Like, when people read the writings of Paul, they'll be like, Paul said we're not supposed to keep the Sabbath. You have to understand what Paul is saying in the context, all right? But watch this. Opposeth means to go against. To exalt means to put oneself up. So he's referencing back to the book of Daniel. And he says in Daniel 7, verse 8, Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. That's exaltation. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints. That's opposing. That's fighting against. And then it says, and prevailed against him. Daniel 7, 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. That's exaltation. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That's opposing. And shall think to change times and laws. That means he's exalting himself. And then it says, shall be given into their hand for a time, times, and the dividing of time. Hopefully we can get to that point. Daniel 8, 10 says, and it waxed great. That's exaltation. And it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. That's opposition. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts. That's exaltation. And by him the daily was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That's opposition, my friends. And Daniel 8, 24, and his, and his power shall be mighty, and not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and destroy the mighty and holy people. That's opposition. Daniel 8, 25, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. Is that exaltation or opposition? Exaltation. I think you guys get the point. And by peace shall destroy many. That's opposition. And he shall stand up against the prince of princes. That's opposition and exaltation. You guys see that? So you see Paul is referencing Daniel and Daniel 7, all these verses I read here, all these verses I read here are identifying the Antichrist's power. I'm putting a lot on your plate. 
chew it at your, you know, masticate, chew, use your enzymes. Now I thought this passage was interesting. Daniel eleven thirty six. And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself. Doesn't that sound just like 2 Thessalonians 2, 4? And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. And he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that, that is determined shall be done. Then it says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, verse 37, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall, what's it say, my friends? Magnify himself how? Isn't that the exact same language as that up there? Let me go back, let me go back. I just want to make sure. You see that right there. Exalt himself above all down here. He He shall magnify himself above all. Clearly, Paul is referencing the same power. Are you still with me? Do you need a break? All right. So here, here's, I want to do something else with you because I'm just in a more of a teacher mode than preacher thing going on right now. So before I do that, I'm going to do a review so you can stay with me. So Daniel 2, in Daniel 2 we had the, the head of, I only had one person say that. In Daniel 2, we had the head of gold. And we had the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of silver, and this is brass, legs of legs of iron, and the feet were what? Feet of iron and clay. And we identify these powers. I'm not going to go over and repeat every detail of this presentation, but the head of gold was of Babylon. Chestnuts of silver was Medo-Persia. Thighs, belly and thighs were Greece. Legs of iron, which were Rome, right? Pagan Rome. And then we said iron and clay, and I didn't give you the, the name of the kingdom, but I told you and showed you clay in the Bible is a symbol of a church. And the iron is a symbol of the state. So whatever this power is will be a combination of church and state. Everybody with me so far? All right. So when we get to Daniel 7, we have another set of images that are given. All right. And I'm out of space. All right. So uh, what I'll do, I'll just write it in a different color. So stay with me for a few more moments here. Let me get another. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then there's something that happens here, but you notice that the element is still the same. The element is still iron. Iron goes all the way down to the end of time. Are you with me? The element doesn't change. 
I want to show you something else. Go to Daniel 7 for a moment. Go to Daniel 7. I'm going to show you something else. In Daniel 7, there is a congruent prophecy. And it's interesting that in Daniel 7, all the beasts in Daniel 7 are beasts of prey. They are all unclean animals. They are all animals that actually destroy. So in Daniel 7, I see four beasts coming out of the earth. Verse 4 says, the first was like what, my friends? A lion. So the first is like a lion. So I'm going to put a lion right here above the head of gold. The second one, it says, the first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. The wings are plucked up. Verse 5 says, and behold, another beast, a second like a, what's it say, my friends? A bear. So we have another one that's a bear. And what's the next one? Oh, actually, before I go to the next one, I want you to see something about the bear in, 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 this, in this passage. It says, it's raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth, uh, in between the teeth of it. And they said, thus unto it, rise and devour much flesh. And after this, I beheld, and lo, another like a, what's the next one? A leopard. All right? A leopard. And then the next one. It says in verse number seven, after this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. What kind of teeth did it have? Very good. And it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had how many horns? Ten horns. So this one is a dreadful, terrible beast. Now I'm going to go into great de detail on this when we do the market of beasts, okay? But for now, these are beasts of prey, and these beasts correlate with Daniel 2 perfectly. So the lion is Babylon. And if you look in any history book, you'll see these big lions as symbols on Babylon's uh, gates. Okay? The bear had three ribs in his mouth. The three ribs represent the three kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered in order to conquer the whole region. The leopard has four heads, which represents the four heads uh, after Alexander the Great died. There are four major generals that took over. Uh, they were the mainstays of Greece. Again, I'll go, into, I'll go into extreme detail when we deal with the market of beasts. And then we have the dreadful and terrible beasts. Now, remember from the other night, which one of these uh, beasts or animals was Daniel concerned about? He was concerned about number four. He was not concerned about the first one, second one, third one. He was concerned about this one. Why was he concerned about number four? Please tell me why. Because God's people were being destroyed by the fourth one. Now, this one is interesting because this one has ten horns, and then it has a little horn that comes up and plucks up three of the horns by the roots. It's a very interesting uh, imagery that, that presents itself there, and again, I will go into great detail when I deal with it in the Market of Beasts. Now, I want you to see something else in that passage. Do you see uh, Daniel 7? I want you to go all the way down to verse 
7, we just read verse 7, right? We're in verse 8. Now watch verse 8. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were, the, were eyes like the eyes of men, and a mouth speaking, what kind of things, my friends? Great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and ancient of days did sit, whose garments was white like snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. So what we have, we have these four kingdoms, and then we have a little horn. But it doesn't stay little. It gets big. And from the time the little horn comes on the scene, it goes all the way down to the end of time until it's destroyed in the judgment. You guys follow? But the horn comes out of the terrible beast. It's connected. Are you following what I'm saying? So uh, let me back up. In Daniel 2, you had the legs of iron, and the iron went all the way down into the feet, all the way to the end of time. With uh, Daniel 7, you have a dreadful, terrible beast, and you have a horn that comes up, and the horn goes all the way down to the end of time. And the horn is connected to the fourth beast. In other words, the characteristics of that fourth beast is we found all the way until our day. Okay? I just wanted to put that before you because I'm going to do something in a minute. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then there's this one. And I put PR. <laughs> I want to tell you. I promise I'll tell you before you go home tonight. I do want you to notice this, that the mindset of this beast power or this antichrist power is the same mindset as Lucifer himself. Do you see the issue on the screen? Ezekiel 28, 15, thou was perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast, what's it say, my friends? Sin. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. What's your problem? His problem. Look at verse 13. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like, what, what does it say? So please see, note that the spirit of exaltation in this beast power is the same spirit of exaltation that Lucifer had in heaven. Is everybody following? Okay. You said yes. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Self-exaltation. Now, my friends, I, I, I dare say this, I, and I'm going to say this in a kind way. There's only going to be two classes of people in the end of time. Those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves. For a moment, I want you to think about your life. And I'm talking to you directly as a person, as a human being. When you wake up in the morning, is your honor and praise and glory to God? When you walk throughout your day, is your honor, praise, and glory to God? Or is it about you? When you get mad throughout your day, how many times do you get mad because they blaspheme God? Or do you get mad because somebody didn't do you right? Are you understanding my question? 
The spirit of Christ is lowliness. The spirit of the enemy is self-exaltation. There's only two classes of people in the end of time. I'm going to pass that. All right, so here are seven places in the Bible that gives you the time frame for when this power is dominant or rules. Seven places in the Bible. Now, each one of these places, whenever the number seven is given, seven is a perfect number. And if my mom told me to do something twice, I probably was already in trouble. What do you think? So if somebody says something, if Jesus says something seven times, that means he wants you to pay attention. There's something particular about this time frame that he wants you to understand. So remember what we talked about the other day? We said a day in Bible prophecy is equal to what? A year. A day in Bible prophecy equals a year, according to Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34. That's what we said. And because a day in Bible prophecy equals a year, when we read in Daniel 7.25, time, times, and a half a time, or, and it says it in Daniel 12, 7, time, times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year, so three and a half times, or we read 42 months, 1260 days, let's just do 1260 days for a moment, 1260 days, based on our understanding of Bible prophecy, equals what? 1260 what? Good, so 1260 years, that's what we have. And in the Bible, when it talks about months, the Jews counted their months by the lunar movement of the, of the, the lunar, by the movement of the moon. On average, it was 30 days. So you do 42 times 30. You guys do a little bit of math. What's 42 times 30? Okay, so 42 times 30. Just, just in case you guys didn't do it. It's 1260. And 1260 days translates into 1260 what? Years. Okay? And then we have 42 months, three and a half times. Again, I told you three and a half times is it's uh, 12, what do we say? Three and a half times is, is 36, three and a half years. How do you do the math? How would you do this math? If this is three and a half years times 12? All right, you times it by 12, and that will give you 1,260 days, and days equals, or years, okay? So this 1260, 1260, I want you to have nightmares about it, okay? It's 1260, repeated over and over and over again. Why is the Bible focused on 1260 years? Now, in this rapid moment, I'm going to move extremely fast, okay? Let me come out of this. I need to move down a little bit, and here we go. Stay with me. We're going to move quickly. I'm going to give you a lot of information. So we talked about Babylon, head of gold, lion, same thing. Bear, Medo Persia, chest and arms of silver, same thing. Leopard, belly and thighs of brass, same thing. We just did this. And then we have the dragon, or the dreadful and terrible beast. This dreadful and terrible beast, pagan Rome, okay? Same thing. We just did that on the board. Now, I'm going to reveal the, actually, before I go there, I want you to see something else before I do that. Let me go up here. Look at this. And I'm going to let you take a picture of it, because I see you guys with the camera. Look at this. 
I want you to pay particular attention to this category on, the, on your right. These are all the descriptions and identifying marks of the Antichrist power. Every single one. It tells you where the power comes up from. It tells you the time of its arrival, how long it's going to stay there. It compares the other kingdoms in comparisons uh, as far as the characteristics are concerned. It talks about its inherent authority. It talks about its claims. It's a persecuting power. says how long they're going to last. It talks about a deadly wound being received. It talks about it being healed. It talks about a worldwide popularity. It has a number. It has doctrines. And it's an attempt to change God's time laws. Okay? With that being stated, I'm going to go through a series of information that hopefully you can follow me with. All right, so this dreadful, terrible beast, pagan Rome, has a little horn that comes up out of it. These ten horns are these ten kingdoms here. The Suevi, the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Herolite, Ostrogoths, Lombards, Alemanni, the Anglo-Saxons. These are the kingdoms that were ruling during the time that pagan Rome was kind of on its way out. Okay? And there are three kingdoms that were plucked up by the roots. So the Alemanni represents the Germans. The Burgundians were the Swiss. The Franks were the French. The Lombards are the Italians. The Saxons are the English. The Suevi are the Portuguese. The Visigoths are the Spanish. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals no longer exist. Remember, the little horn will pluck up three of the horns by the roots. So they would no longer exist, and they don't. These three kingdoms are gone. So this little horn, who is this power? Daniel wanted to know the truth. So it comes up among the ten. It comes up among the kingdoms that we just saw right here, okay? It comes up among the ten. That's the location. It comes up there in Europe. Everybody follow that? So we know the Antichrist power is going to come out of Europe. It has to come up after 476. Why? Because that's when pagan Rome was going off the scene. So there has to be another power coming up simultaneously. Prophecy has a chronological order. Let's go a little bit further. It's a little kingdom because it's a little horn. Everybody follow that? It's a little power. It uproots three, and I just went over what the three were, the Herline, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. It has a human leader. Why do we know it has a human leader? Because it has eyes like a man, okay? It's diverse. Why is it diverse? Because it has a union. It has a, it has a connection between church and, yes, very good, it speaks blasphemy. Now, again, we're going to go into great detail on what this means, but for now, just follow me. It speaks blasphemy. What is blasphemy? John 10, 30 to 33. Go there very quickly. You guys are doing good. You're hanging in there. Praise the Lord. Look at this. John 10, 33. Start at verse 30. The Bible says, Jesus is speaking. It says, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. 
Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Watch this. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for, what's it say? Blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself what? So when a man claims that he is God, that is, that's blasphemy. Another place where you, it's, it's blasphemy, I believe, is Mark, or it's Luke 5. I put it here, so I have to guess. Luke 5 is also in Mark. But Luke 5, go to Luke 5, 20 and 21. What is another reason for blasphemy? Luke 5, 20 and 21. It says, And when he saw their faith, he said unto, them, unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but who, my friends? So if a man claims that he is God, or a man claims that he can forgive sins, this is what the Bible claims or testifies as blasphemy. Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. It's a persecuting power. This Antichrist system has been around for a long time. It's killed 500 to 100 million Christians in its time frame of existence. And that's a conservative number. Many have died for their faith. It seeks to change times and laws. Let me see. I'm, I passed this. I'm going to pass this. I'm going to pass this. already did that. We did this already. I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, we did the 1260. Here's the times and laws. He shall think to change times and laws. Pay attention. The Pope has power to change times to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. This is from their own writings, Decreto de Translate Episcopa Cap. Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. It's talking about changing from Sabbath, Seventh-day Sabbath to Sunday, first-day worship. So it's claiming that it has that power. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The, whole, the holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. This is what they said from their own writings. Okay? Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey who, my friends? God rather than who? I'll, I'll leave this one alone. This one's talking about the Pope, and he's saying that he believes in evolution. The Pope gives blessing to the natural selection through man's soul, though, soul, though man's souls remain beyond science's reach. Did God create a mankind in his image, as the Bible says, or did humans evolve from animals, as Darwin theorized nearly 150 years ago? According to Pope John Paul II, evolution may be a better explanation. We should not interpret Genesis literally. This is from the editor, 1991, the Catholic Encyclopedia. So we have this power. We have the little horn power raising up. 
And we have the power in Revelation chapter 13. They are of the same power. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Revelation 13, 2. Again, these are all the identifying marks. It comes up among the ten. It comes after 476 as pagan Rome is going off the scene. It comes out of Rome itself. It means it's still present. It uproots three kingdoms, and we saw that it uprooted three kingdoms, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. It's diverse, different. Why? Because there's a union of church and church and state. It speaks blasphemy. How does it speak blasphemy? It claims to, be, to forgive sin, and he also claims to be God. During that same time frame, the 1,260 years, the Christians were persecuted and prosecuted for having Bibles, for believing in what the Scriptures taught. It changed times and laws. It changed the day from Saturday Sabbath to Sunday, the first day of the week. I didn't even share with you the other parts. Again, when we deal with the mark of the beast, we'll go further in that regard. It's based in Rome. Now, Rome is a very interesting place. Now, what am I doing there? Let me come out of that for a second. I want to show you something else. Did you know? Yeah, let me go here. That this is a little kingdom. It's 109 acres. This is not just a church. It is a political power as well. And so the Vatican City is the smallest independent country in the world. Did you know that? Vatican City covers only 109 acres, is about as large as an average city park. Vatican City lies entirely within the city of Rome, Italy. It has been an independent country since 1929. Vatican City issues its own postage stamps, coins, and license plates. The Pope's yellow and white banner is the official state flag of Vatican City. It is a little power, as small as a state park, but it has global influence and global power. I will show you in the next few days, and again, when I'm speaking about this power, please understand, this is not the only thing we need to be concerned about. The issue here with this power more than anything else is that at some level, and maybe I left it out, at some level, and let, me, let me put that up there. The Pope as absolute ruler of Vatican heads all government branches. It talks about the population, so forth and so on. So I want to I show you something else. There was something I, I saw the other day, and I don't know if I put it on here. And I probably didn't. I probably was saving it, and I probably should just save it. I'll save it. But I'll, I want to put this up so you can see, at least see this. This is from a book uh, by a, a man named Malachi Martin. The book is about this thick. I have it in my, in my study. It's called The Keys of This Blood. Malachi Martin served three popes as a diplomat and spy. He spoke 17 languages because he's dead now. Is a renowned Bible scholar and a professor at Rome's Pontifical Biblical Institute. And watch what he says. Ah, did I not put it here? I did not put it here. Oh, friends, I have something I wanted to share with you. There it is. Whew. I'm scared. 
Okay. In the eyes of groups like Adventists, Baptists, and Evangelicals, their regard and respect for democratic principles impose upon them the obligation, the religious as well as the civil and political obligation, to defend every person's right to be wrong. So what does that mean? In other words, we have freedom of conscience. You don't get to dictate to me, and I don't get to dictate to you what we're supposed to do, right or wrong. If you want to worship a tree, you have a right to go worship a tree. You, you follow what I'm saying? We have religious liberty. I have a right. But watch what he says. Every person must have the right not only to believe in the hell of the damned and heaven of the saved, every person must literally be assured the right to choose heaven or hell. That obligation carried to, to the extreme not only sets the minimalists apart from John Paul, it sets them, what's it say? Against them. Now watch this. It sets them apart from the Holy Father because democratic principles can never take precedence over divine revelation. Now, that's a true statement, right? If God reveals himself, that's a true statement. But if you're not God, then this doesn't apply. No one can be forced to believe in heaven or hell or to choose the one over the other. Nevertheless, it is axiomatic for John Paul that no one has the right democratic or otherwise, to a moral wrong. So what does that mean? Translate that into English. So if, if for instance, in our society today, in America, you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. You can do whatever you want to do. It's wrong. Is that right? Yeah, it's wrong. But the gospel is what changes a man from the inside out. Legislation will never correct the moral downfall in our country. Do you follow the idea? What's happening, my friends, is that the world is going out of control. And instead of the church linking arms with Jesus in the most holy place, the church is going to the state. And when the church goes to the state, the state does not have the power to give you the ability to live righteously. But there's a kingdom where? In heaven. And as he's making up his kingdom in heaven, by faith we are to enter into that covenant relationship with him so that he can work his grace in our hearts. Do you follow the idea? Let me say it a different way. Heaven right now is building a kingdom. And it's not a theoretical kingdom. It's a kingdom where people really do love each other and look out for each other. It's a kingdom where they will obey God rather than, rather than obey man. It's a kingdom of peace and tranquility. And that kingdom must first be established here before he sets up his eternal kingdom on the physical planet. Do you feel what I'm saying? I just want you to think in this regard. Because right now, I remember a true story now, true story. I was on a plane, and I was on my way from Philadelphia to California. And as I was on the plane, normally on planes, I like to mind my business. <laughs> I like to sleep, leave me alone, I'm tired. But then I pray all the time, if I'm on the plane, Father, you want me to talk to somebody, just make it plain so I'll know. So I get on the plane, and I sit down on the plane, or in my seat, and there's a guy to my right, and as he's sitting to my right, he 
he kind of like ignores me, so I already know I'm good. I don't have to talk to this guy, right? Then another guy sits down, and he has a collar on, and he has these beads in his hand. And I turn, and I talk, and I turn, and I say hello, and he's like, hello. He says, he says hello back, and I'm like, oh, this is great. So now we're about to have a conversation. And as, listen to me now, this is a true story. As I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm conversing, of course, the first law in witnessing is you let other people talk first. You want to hear what people have to say. So I'm listening. He's telling me about, you know, he's, he's a priest, and he's doing, he's actually not just a priest, he's a Jesuit, and he's telling me about all the work that he's doing in Thailand, and that he has a missionary school out there, and I'm like, wow, I have a missionary school too. So we have a connection, and then we're talking. Listen now, we're talking. I'm talking to someone who I believe loves Jesus. Listen to me. I believe he loves Jesus. So I'm talking to him, and we get to the point, and I, and I, and I ask him, um, you know, I've heard about this thing called, you know, um, purgatory. I said, could you please explain it to me? So he begins to explain it to me. And uh, he's telling me that, you know, um, it's a place where people go who, you know, they, you know, they weren't completely righteous. They're not going to hell, but, you know, they're getting purified. And they're being purified in this position. I was like, well, I just asked honestly. I said, well, I, I understand what you're saying. Is that in the Bible anywhere? I mean, I just want to understand, like, where did this idea come from? Like, where is it? Well, it says, no, not in the Bible. I said, oh, okay. So I said, when you die, where do you think you're going to go? And his honest, his honest answer was, he said, I'm probably going to go to purgatory. Now, my mind says, why would I want, if, I, if, if, if God is going to have me in some type of burning situation until something gets burnt out of me, why would I want to serve him? Like, in my mind, this picture of God is not accurate. However, he is sincere. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how, Lord, how can I communicate? What can I say to help? What can I say to help? And so I, I began to ask him about salvation. How, how are you saved? Like, how, how does that work? Well, it's a, it's a combination of grace and works. Listen to me. Salvation is all grace. Listen to me. The ticket in is all grace. Like, you get in, you're never going to be like, well, I ate this, and I exercised today, and I gave Bible studies, and I preached. That will not get you in. The only ticket in is the absolute perfection of Christ from beginning to end. That what gets you into heaven. You accept that. That's your ticket in. Amen? So I'm talking to the man. I'm like, he's telling me he has to be, you know, purified and this and that. And I'm like, wow. So I said, the, the, the major issue is a misunderstanding of God. God is love. He's not trying to burn people up. What he's doing, he has already given himself as a sacrifice. And I go directly to Jesus. No intermediary, no priest, because he can't help me because he has the same problems. And that's the same thing with a pastor, too. You know that, right? Don't be coming to me telling me all your problems, thinking I can help you. (laughs) There's only one intercession between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. You go to him. Now, let me explain why this is so important. 
Because if you go to a man and confess your sins to a man, tell me, where are your sins? You're still with you. You still are a man of sin. Don't confess your sins to a man. Don't give them to a woman. You know, when you confess your sins to Jesus, you know where they go? They go on Jesus. Do you have them anymore? No. He has them. He has them. So I don't have to tell you all my deep, dark, bad stuff. Amen. And when we get to heaven, they, they have all the books are open. My name is going to be covered in blood. You hear what I'm saying? You're not going to see none of my dirt. It's going to be saved by grace. How many understood our study tonight? Let me see your hand. You understood? You understood? Praise God. How many are going to commit to walk with Jesus? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to our knees. Let's pray. And let me let you go home. Father in heaven, we've, we've lingered here, and the saints have been so patient. So much information has been given, yet, Father, I know that at the end of the day, this information will only benefit those who want to go back and study. And I pray, Father, that you give each heart a willing heart to follow after you for we will be tested very soon I had barely got to what needed to be presented tonight father I just pray Lord that you will fortify our hearts in the truth fortify our hearts in the scriptures teach us how to lean upon you every moment of every day the martyrs of old stood for you father as they were being persecuted and prosecuted as they were being burned at the stake they sang songs Lord Those days are not far from us, Father. Help us to be faithful. Teach us how to love you and appreciate your sacrifice for us. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. And I pray a special prayer for each one who heard these messages tonight. I pray, Lord, that you give them good rest. And, Lord, what it has taken years for me to learn, I ask that you teach everyone in a few short months. Download that information, Father. Give us clarity of thought and feeling so that we can see this great controversy and know whose side we stand on. We pray this in Jesus' name and we claim the merits of his blood. Amen. 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 Good night. Oh, you do not.